Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. I'm Shivani, and today we are thrilled to have Sean Hagen with us. Sean Hagen is General Counsel and Director of the Legal Department at the International Monetary Fund. In this role, Mr. Hagen advises the fund's management, executive board, and membership on all legal aspects of the fund's operations, including its regulatory, advisory, and lending functions. Mr. Hagen has published extensively on both the law of the fund and a broad range of legal issues. He received a JD from Georgetown Law Center and a master's in international political economy from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Hagen. Thank you. We ask all of our guests about inflection points, pivotal moments in their life that changed the direction of their career or personal life. Can you share one with us? Absolutely. Um, so I was uh, at law school, and I had a general idea about my interest in the intersection of law, economics, finance, and public policy, but I really didn't know how to translate that into a career. And I took what many of my friends thought a very risky decision by taking a year off from law school and going to the LSE. Uh, not to study law, but to actually study uh, international political economy. And it was a pivotal role for me because I realized halfway through the year that I really wanted to focus in the international arena, and that I wanted to work for an international organization. So it was a pivotal year for me. Um, another one that uh, was important for me was I was working in a law firm, and um, I had taken this job in part because I had realized that the way you worked in international organizations was to work at firms mm -hmm. beforehand. They, they really were not interested in having a, a, a graduate so I was working in this firm, and it just wasn't a very satisfying experience. Um, and um, I decided again, somewhat to the horror of my friends, <laughs> to take an unorthodox decision and um, go to Japan and work for a Japanese law firm. And uh, Japanese law firm meaning I was the only foreign lawyer in the firm. Wow. And so I was there for three years. And it was a very powerful experience for me, both professionally and personally. Um, so those are two inflection points at an early stage of my career. Absolutely. And and you've been with the IMF after you left private pra practice, I think. Uh, from one of the interviews, it, it had been 26 years at that exactly point. Exactly, at that point, yeah. It's, Which it's, is, getting, <laughs> it's getting on to 28 years now. That's yes. incredible. Yeah, it's uh, been a long time. How, how have you seen sort of, because for students my age, um, it's less so that you join one company and are going to be a, a company man uh, for the rest of your career. Uh, so that's definitely a... You know, something that was much more common um, a few generations ago, but is so much less so now. Uh, how would you say that, you know, having the opportunity to grow with the IMF and sort of evolve your role within it has shaped uh, your your outlook on the, the international organization realm, but also um, your contributing role through the IMF? Yeah, so... It, it is extraordinary, even for me, when I think about it, that I've been there for 28 years. When I arrived, I did not envisage myself staying there for, for a long time. I thought maybe two or three years, mm. and actually I thought that maybe I would go back to Japan because I really had enjoyed that experience. But 
What's great about the IMF is that it's an institution that is constantly evolving. And it's constantly evolving because its job is to essentially manage crises, and crises tend to evolve. So when I arrived, it was the end of the Latin American debt crisis. Oh, wow. When that was over, we had the collapse of the former Soviet Union, and the fund was involved in being really a midwife for um, these these states into you know the the capitalist environment, the international economy. Um, following that, we had the Asian financial crisis. Um, then we had a crisis in Argentina, and then of course we had the great financial crisis in two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm going through this is that each crisis required a different perspective, and it required me to essentially learn an entirely different set of issues. So in some respects, I feel like I've had a number of different jobs, Mm -hmm. even though I've been working in the same institution, which is why I've enjoyed it. I really think that you're professionally not happy unless you feel like you are going through growth. You know, I, I think people who no matter how much money they're making, if in fact they feel that they're not growing intellectually, I think it can become a, a, a difficult um, situation. So I've been really lucky because I've been able to evolve with the institution. That the IMF uh, and its evolution is so affected by what's going on in international markets and the crises that are going on in the world makes it seem like maybe a little bit of a responsive institution. Uh, how does it balance that tension between responding to what's going on in markets, but also needing to be a leader and a stabilizer to those markets? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, unlike other development banks Mm -hmm. that sort of help countries choose projects, we are sort of on the receiving end of a request from a member country that has nowhere else to go and essentially has run out of hard currency and is desperate for IMF assistance. So we're on the receiving end and we have to react. So you're right that that is a dynamic which um, sort of has us bounce from one crisis to the other. At the same time, I think the fund tries to be a learning institution. In other words, we have uh, people who invest a lot of time and energy in research and basically trying to distill lessons from earlier crises. We also, and this is less well known about the fund, so the fund is an interesting institution because it has the financial powers that you are all familiar with, which is countries come to us for money, we provide the financing in exchange for them, taking measures that we think are gonna solve the underlying problem. But the IMF is also a regulatory institution meaning that when countries become members of the IMF, they actually incur certain obligations with respect to their economic policies. And the fund is charged with doing what's called an annual consultation, like an audit, basically to assess how they're doing. And that role is supposed to be a crisis prevention role, Mm. which in some respects is much more proactive than reactive. Now, the extent to which we're successful in that sometimes is undermined by the fact that even though the country might see the wisdom in our advice, it can be painful. 
and therefore they would prefer not to follow it and they don't have to follow it because they're getting money anyway from the private markets. So our leverage in that role is less than our leverage in the financial role, but we do do a significant amount of crisis prevention work as well. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of some of the crises that the IMF uh, has been involved in to mitigate, um, there was an article that, that we had stumbled upon about changing the lending rules to Ukraine um, uh, a few years back and, and sort of Russia's criticism to that being a very specific and uh, one of the responses um, to an IMF uh, intervention. And so my question to you is, how do you make something like the IMF, which I perceive to be very much a um, a body that isn't supposed to be overtly political, um, how do you m mitigate and, and sort of navigate the waters from criticism that it is uh, politicized or, or becoming uh, too political? Correct. Okay, so that's a great question. Um, and it requires us to understand a little bit about the governance structure of the IMF, right? So the IMF is an international organization, which means that it is actually independent. It's not like the G7 or the G20, which is just a grouping where people, it's not a forum. It's an independent organization that has its own legal status. And it consists of really two dimensions. It has a, a, a political dimension, which is the executive board, which are representatives of member countries, right. who are involved in basically making all of the decisions of the fund, okay? But the other dimension is what I call the professional dimension, which is the staff who owe an exclusive duty of loyalty to the fund, people like myself. Mm -hmm. And what's important is the way these two dimensions work with each other, because even though the executive board takes the decisions, all of their decisions are based on analysis by the staff. And the only way in which the IMF has credibility, including with the markets, which is, is if there is adequate confidence on the intellectual integrity of the advice being provided. So that's the first point. So okay. the independence of the staff is pretty important. Right. The second one is that one of the ways in which we try to basically restrain the perception of a politicization is by not taking decisions in a purely ad hoc way. Mm -hmm. In other words, to we what we do is we adopt policies. In other words, a general approach that we are required to follow in a country case. And that those general approaches include the adoption of guidelines, of regulations, which say and actually, the case that you referred to with Ukraine and Russia is a very good example. Mm -hmm. So we had a policy in place until a couple of years ago where we would not lend to a country that had arrears to official bilateral creditors. That was a policy that, quite frankly, the staff had never supported. We mm -hmm. thought that it was a policy that allowed creditors individual official creditors to basically essentially veto a fund program. It was a policy, however, that never really had significant bite because most official bilateral creditors operated within the Paris Club, okay. 
which was a consensual grouping of creditors. And essentially, generally, the Paris Club went along with fund-supported programs. Over time, over time, what we found is that many official bilateral creditors are not in the Paris Club. Mm. Many official bilateral creditors are not your what you would understand as your typical official creditors. Many of them are emerging market creditors. Okay. So this is the evolution of international finance. Mm. So as a result of that, this policy we found was beginning to actually prevent us from providing financing to countries that were really ready to go through adjustment programs. And it's for that reason we felt it was an important opportunity to basically modify the policy to allow us to go forward. It happened to occur in the case of Ukraine, but it's a um, – I was interviewed actually at the time of that change. And I, I, you know, I, what I pointed out was this is a change that we had been wanting to achieve for, for many, many years. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. You mentioned the interplay between the professional side that works for the IMF and the political side that works for nation states. Uh, and a lot of your career work has dealt specifically with the issue of corruption. Yes. How have you navigated that interplay in creating policies that might adversely affect the states themselves that you're trying to help work with to reduce corrupt yeah. behavior? Clearly, you know, addressing corruption is a sensitive issue when you define corruption, corruption as the abuse of public office for private gain, because mm -hmm. essentially you're focusing on public officials. And when you work in an intergovernmental organization that's dealing with governments, it's not necessarily an easy conversation to have. <laughs> Fair. You can imagine. But I think we are at a point, you use the word inflection point, we are at an inflection point now where there's a general recognition amongst governments that the cost of systemic corruption is so high from an economic perspective that it is something that they cannot ignore anymore. Now, there are states where corruption is at the highest level and we're not going to get a great deal of traction. Mm -hmm. But these countries are finding that because of that, they're not getting the level of foreign investment that they would otherwise get. Because corruption, you know, really has an enormous impact on investment. It's a tax on investment. But, you know, even worse, it creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty. If you're thinking of making an investment in a country, and there's a risk that you're going to make this massive capital outlay to build a company, an oil refinery, only to find that you're going to be subject to extortion for kickbacks, mm -hmm. do you invest there? Or do you go somewhere else that might be a little bit more expensive, but where rule of law is established? Right. So I think countries are beginning to realize that they're in a competitive marketplace for attracting capital, and then they need to address these issues. So we were reading that there's uh, now the introduction of using big data analytics and detecting corruption, um, and, and the IMF is sort of championing that as well. Um, can you speak more to that? Sure. I mean, I think that I think that technology, let me speak directly just more generally on technology, mm -hmm. that technology is a really positive force for addressing corruption. Um, partly because corruption exists 
when you actually have an intermediary who is abusing his or her discretion as a way of exerting power and control to extort funding. Right. One of the benefits of technology is that it can, first of all, create transparency. Mm -hmm. But some cases you eliminate that intermediary. You Instead of basically for a company that wants to um, import, um, they don't have to necessarily go to a customs official. You can actually complete the customs application online. Right. So the other aspect that's actually quite interesting in some countries is technology is also being used as a way of creating accountability. Um, and there is actually, I think, a social media site in India called uh, IJustPaidABribe.com. Interesting. Yes. Yes, where you can report. Oh, wow. Yes. And, uh, you know, who it is that um, asked for uh, a bribe. It's actually quite interesting. So there is different ways that t technology can be used to create accountability. I mean, that's that's reassuring to know, especially with the headlines <laughs> yeah. nowadays. Yes, uh, yes. Speaking of headlines nowadays, especially affecting us in the United States, mm -hmm. there was an article in Business Insider recently that cited some research that you had produced about the cost of corruption and connected it to existing conflicts of interest in the United States government right now, particularly with the Trump administration. It didn't seem like you had any hand in creating that article, but do you see any connection to be made there? And do you think it was a fair use of the research you've done? Yeah, I, look, I, I, couple of points. Um, first of all, we're not going, the IMF goes out of its way to avoid talking about individual cases. Absolutely. Because actually if we did, it could actually interfere with the judicial and criminal process. So mm. we avoid getting involved in individual cases. That's the first point I would say. The second thing is that the fund is focusing very much on circumstances where corruption becomes systemic. Okay. In other words, where it's no longer the exception to the norm, but becomes the norm itself. Right. Right? We're not, we're not looking at isolated cases of corruption, even at a most senior level. I think there's a general recognition that the levels of corruption in countries like the United States are relatively low. Mm. So this is not a, this is not what is interesting and what is relevant in the United States is what we refer to as the supply side issue, which is you've got countries where there is systemic corruption, but corruption that involves bribery involves a transaction. Right. For every official who receives a bribe, there's a private actor who's giving a bribe. Mm -hmm. And some of those private actors might be multinationals located in the United States. Similarly, those, those corrupt officials living in a Ruritania or whatever the country might be, they need to find a way of concealing the proceeds of their corruption and one of the ways they do it is to transfer it to the financial system of advanced economies right. where it can be concealed. So there is a role for advanced economies to basically ensure that they are criminalizing and prosecuting the bribery of foreign officials and not allowing their financial system to be used to conceal. So one of the things that we are doing increasingly is, is urging countries like the United States and other advanced economies just take steps to prevent that from happening.
Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're nearing the end of our interview. But before um, we end, we'd love to ask our guests to help us define um, by, by providing their own personal definition of success, uh, which is, yes, a very nebulous question. Um, but if you were uh, to give any advice on, on students my age on how to personally define success for themselves, what would it be? OK, so the first thing I would say is that based on my own experience, it's important not to be too definitive when you're making decisions about uh, career options. And what I mean by that is they often say that um, hard work comes from interest. I actually find, in my own experience, the opposite is true, that interest comes from hard work. There might be a career opportunity that generally might sound promising, but the specifics actually are somewhat alien to anything you've ever thought about. And my experience is that actually trying it out, you find that you many things become interesting that you wouldn't have thought were the case. Right. In the case of the IMF, it really wasn't my first choice as an international organization. I saw myself working for the bank. I was really interested in development. So, you know, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is we tend to compartmentalize our lives a little bit too much. We think of success in our career, and then the other side of it is sort of our personal lives. Mm -hmm. The people I know who are most happy in their professional careers are the people who have tried to decompartmentalize it so that where they work also happens to be a place where they have relationships with people whose values they share mm -hmm. and whom they just would like to hang out with. <laughs> so decompartmentalizing your life, I think, is an important avenue for success. You've got to like the people you work with, and you've got to feel good about what you're doing. And if you don't and you just look at your work as a way of maximizing income, I think you're um, – setting yourself up for failure, not success. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Mr. Hagen, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.